Hey, uh, thrilled that you're here, and um, thanks for doing that. As a church, we like to do that from time to time, and uh, just bless families and bless kids, and so we get to do that together. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to the book of Esther. We are in week three of this series in Esther, kind of building bravery. If not, if you go to the app and you go to sermon notes, it'll have all the information that we have that we're gonna tackle tonight there. Uh, I am still getting over my cold a little bit, so I will occasionally drink some water here, but how many of you have played uh, baseball or softball? Raise your hand. Baseball or softball? You've Okay. So you remember that that is very much a team sport, isn't it? It's, it takes all nine on the field, plus all those who are helping and behind the scenes coaching. But there's one moment in baseball or softball that really feels like a solo journey, isn't it? And it's that moment when you step into the batter's box. So you step, I'm right-handed, so I'd step in to the batter's box. And how many of you remember that feeling? Because it's an exciting feeling, but it's also nerve-wracking, isn't it? At the same time, it's in that moment where you're stepping up to the plate that you are kind of all on your own. Uh, There are people who have coached into you and poured into you, invested in you, done routine after routine to help you all along the way. But in that particular moment, you're in the box and you're kind of on your own. And you had to step into that moment, and you're stepping up to figure out what is going on and how you're going to tackle what's to come. And I want you to keep that in mind as we look into Esther's story and how Esther in this moment in this story is going to be at a place, he's just a traveling preacher, isn't he? (laughs) So So Esther is taking place, again, we look back in the Persian Empire, so a quick recap, 480 B.C., Uh, This is happening. There's things going on. Uh, Esther, we described as the Game of Thrones without the dragons. That's really the story that's going on. It's so much going on here about kings and queens, sex and power, triumph and tragedy, silence, hidden agendas, and all this kind of stuff that's going on throughout this story. And we looked at a couple different times that this is for the Jewish people who are still back in the land of of the Persian Empire who have not gone back to Israel to kind of rebuild Jerusalem and all of that. They're here, and what do you do in a land when everything in that land is really kind of against your values? And you have a chance in those moments to drift one of two ways, either to conformity, to assimilation into anything, you change who you are, or into isolation, where you just isolate yourself and you kind of stand back and push back against culture and you don't have any influence. And yet what we see in the life of Mordecai and Esther is this challenge to find a third way to find another way. We would call this the way of Jesus, the Jesus way. That that there's something about not just assimilating in a culture or conforming to it, but it's nor is it isolating away from it. Jesus said, you are salt and light of the world. You're not to duck and cover. It's not just to isolate away, but nor is it to totally conform and just be just like. You're called to be in the world, but not of it. And there's this dissonance and this, with this challenge of nuance of trying to figure out to live in the tension of that. And we see Esther and Mordecai begin to do that. Last week, we kind of uncovered this idea of trying to figure out uh, this difference between a worldly sense of power, that sense to, to control and to dominate, versus a godly sense of power that's anchored into vulnerability and advocating for others. And Haman, we looked at, the villain of the story, It's kind of this one who seeks to dominate and control. It's kind of the worldly way of power. And yet, 
we see Esther and Mordecai beginning to build this godly bravery within their life, that they're gonna be people who live with a sense of vulnerability and this sense of advocating on behalf of others. And we looked at the core verse of the whole book of Esther last week. Here it is, Esther 14, uh, chapter four, verses 14 through 16 says this, if you remain silent at this time, remember? Uh, Mordecai and Esther having this conversation back and forth from servants who were delivering messages. And Mordecai sends this message to Esther saying, look, I know it's a challenge to go to the king and and you could lose your life, but I'm I'm telling you, you've got to do something because Haman has ordered the elimination of the Jews. This is the pre-Holocaust Holocaust in 486 BC. And this is what's happening. And he says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but for you and your father's family, you'll perish. And who knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. That's a phrase that you often hear about the book of Esther, for such a time as this, that your moment in history is now, Esther. And Esther sends this reply back. Tell Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, the city that's there, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Me and my attendants will do the same. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's this incredible moment of confident bravery that we don't necessarily see on display in chapter one and chapter two. Remember, this is God building bravery within Esther, within Mordecai, this beginning to figure out how do you live a third way? How do you live this way, what we would say, the way of Jesus? To step up into these moments. This is Esther's moment, to step up into the box. And you don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know if it's gonna be a strikeout, a hit. We, we don't know. That's the unknown of this story, but she responds in faith. See, when she calls for a fast, which is really the only explicit religious moment in this whole book. We said Esther is one of the books in the Bible that God has never mentioned. And yet his fingerprints are all throughout this story. So rather than appealing to her own strength and wit, she throws herself in Jesus and at God's mercy. If I perish, I perish. And she's looking for God, leaning on him. She's embracing her identity as a two-named person. Esther is her Persian name. But she's getting ready to approach the king as Hadassah, her Jewish name, on behalf of her people. And she's chosen the path of rejecting power and embraced vulnerability and advocating for others. And so she's been waiting. And here day three rolls around. Here's chapter five, verse one, what happens. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on the royal throne. No, that's not a toilet. He's sitting on the royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And here she stands. Now, you know from law No one is allowed to approach the king unless the king is summoned. If you do, death is what comes your way. Unless the king, by some happen chance, lifts up the golden scepter and spares your life for you to come in to his presence. This is a stand moment. It's stepping up into the box. We don't know what's going to happen. And all throughout history, there have been people who have taken great stands, haven't there? We celebrate them. You think of people in wartime stories who have taken a stand on behalf of their platoon. And it was either something that cost them dearly or cost them sacrificially, their life. 
as they took a stand on behalf of others. We took, see people who'd taken stands in civil rights movements and social action causes in our world. We've seen in history, the early church, how the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus proclaimed Jesus even until their dying breath. They took a stand. You think and you see about Martin Luther, who on April 18th, 1521, stands four years after he had nailed the 95 theses to the, the door in Wittenberg, and he takes a stand, and he says these words, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. And he's excommunicated, and the Protestant movement begins throughout the world. And so you begin to see all throughout the Old Testament, just a few years before Esther, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You read about them as in the Babylonian kingdom, as King Nebuchadnezzar has set up this giant uh, statue and wants everyone to bow down and worship him, basically, to acknowledge him, and yet here's their response. So Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, and if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, O king, we will not serve your gods, and we will not worship this image of gold that you have set up. And they take a stand. You can read how the story unfolds from there. God comes to the rescue and stood by their side, but they were not assured of that outcome when they took that stand initially. And here's Esther taking a stand not assured of the outcome and how it's gonna end. But here's what we read. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. There should be a giant in your Bible margin right there. Because I'm sure it's a sigh of relief from Esther's point of view. He was pleased with her, held out his golden scepter in his hand. She approached, touched that tip of the scepter, and the king asked her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. What? Okay, seconds before, she's in the batter's box not knowing if she's going to die, and here he is, he's offering half. That, whoa, okay. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman, that's the bad guy, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. What? Why? A banquet? Remember how the story started? with a 187-day banquet. Women, you are really, really good at this. Timing, understanding scenarios, situations, the love language of the king. What is it? Flattery and banquets. Uh, Here's my request. I would love for you to come to dinner. Oh, I love dinner. I love banquets. I don't know if you've noticed. You should notice, reading through this book, he loves banquets. And so Esther wins him over, right here from the very beginning. He sends for Haman. Haman is on his way. And they're getting ready to go to this banquet because Esther understands timing. And she understands what's going on. It's important for us, as we make our way to this banquet, of what's going to happen, what we're going to see, to maybe unpack a couple different things here for us. That I think if you read between the lines, and what you see here in the life of Esther, is something very pivotal for us in our journey of following after God. Uh, Some wisdom here that we see on behalf of Queen Esther putting into practice this habit that she puts into place, this pattern, this response that she has, that I think, friends, it would be well served for you and I 
to also model this kind of pattern in our life. When Esther told Mordecai to pray and to have all the people pray, she wasn't asking uh, as a formality. She wasn't asking to sound spiritual. She knew that all her earthly success depended on a divine intervention of heaven. So when you and I are thrust into moments that call for courage, what should we do in that first initial moment? I think there's a couple keys we see from Esther. She hits the pause button. And in a world and a culture that uh, we like everything on play or fast forward, I think there's a secret here for us to learn to hit the pause button. And she pauses to pray and to wait on the Lord. And that's really what you begin to see is this pattern that she puts in place, that fasting and prayer are spiritual practices that we are to engage in as we seek God's will in the decisions of life. That we don't need to pray and fast before you go to fries and go grocery shopping. Okay, now if you want to, go for it. But I don't think you need to. Here would be my suggestion, that you actually make a list, you check with your family like they, what they like to eat, and then go shopping. I don't think you need to pray and fast about what socks you need to buy. But if you do, go for it. God's not immune to that. He's not above that. But I think the reality is I would just suggest to you that buy the cheaper ones. I don't know. But there's reality in life that when it comes to those crucial moments, those bigger decision seasons of life, I think there's a call for us to pray and to fast. Uh, to pray and to wait upon the Lord, to seek his will, that in those certain bigger moments of life, in all those moments, we're invited in to pray. Author Richard Foster says this prayer catapults us into the frontier of the spiritual life, that the spiritual life of following Jesus, if we're really trying to figure out this third way, this Jesus way that's not conforming and not, not isolating, it's a different challenge. It's a nuance. There's tension there. And as you try to navigate that and try to figure that out and live out what that means, you're kind of like a frontiersman person. You're kind of blazing trails that normal, everyday people aren't blazing, that people aren't doing those particular things because maybe they're just, you're, you're learning to not really go along with the crowd, per se. And so it is a challenge. It is kind of like on this frontier that prayer is not just a nice religious uh, practice that we're to engage in. It's our lifeline to God himself to seek out his divine activity and his divine wisdom and help that life is this adventure that we are to seek him out. I think that's why Paul writes so much about prayer in the epistle letters to the early church. He, he teaches us ways to pray. He says, remember Philippians 4, 6 through 7? Look, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and let the peace of God, which transcends all your understanding, guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That Paul's trying to teach us that prayer is to be this pattern of life. He says elsewhere, pray without ceasing. How do you do that? Well, you can't do that. You're not a robot, okay? But what that means is that prayer is just so much a pattern of your life. It's just what you do. You have conversations with people all the time because you want them to get to know you and you want to get to know them. It's the same with God. The question is, do you clue him in? to your conversations? Do you invite him in? Do you invite yourself into his conversations and listening to him? That we're not to make prayer our last resort, 
We're to make it our top priority, to be a habit and a pattern in our life. And so the question very simply is, do you have prayer as a priority in your life, a rhythm of prayer to your life? That when you're needing courage and needing wisdom and needing insight on the right or the best thing to do, those who have a habit of prayer engagement are that much closer to accessing what they need from God. As they have that pattern in them, God is dialed into you, awaiting to interact in prayer with you. You don't have to go and tell God everything to inform him because he's not clued in. He's clued in. He already knows. What we get to do is bring our wrestling before God. God, here's what I'm wrestling with, and I don't know the right way to go. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom, and I need clarity, and I need your hope to be a part of my life. That's the natural part of life. It's beginning to live out Philippians 4, 6 through 7, that you're bringing your request to him and seeking him in that. Prayer is announcing your continual dependence upon God. That's what prayer is. It's having this ongoing conversation. So we see Esther lean into this, and we see Esther leaning into a second thing, learning to wait on the Lord. This three-day fast becomes this interlude between her and God. It creates space as she hits pause and doesn't run. Here's the problem with a lot of us. We ask God to help and then we run out ahead of him. And we really just are asking God to bless what we're actually doing. Instead of him giving us the wisdom and the leading and the timing of what he's asking us to do. And so we lean into those moments and say, God, we need to learn to wait upon you. Learning to wait on God is what will be vital growth to your spiritual journey. I love what Margaret Feinberg says this. Bravery begins when resting in the presence of the courage maker. That's what Esther was doing for that three-day fast before she steps into the box to to figure out what's gonna do, before she steps in with vulnerability and to advocate on behalf of her people. God, I, I just need to spend time with the courage maker in order to have the courage that I need to face the moment that is before me. When you and I are in those moments or seeking those seasons of life, we would be well versed to just practice hitting pause, praying about it, and waiting on the Lord. I love what uh, Isaiah writes this about leaning into God's character, about this whole idea of waiting and leaning into his hope. He says this, Isaiah 40, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. Do you see what's happening? Here's God and here's what's declaring to you. You're not him and neither am I. This is him, this is what he's like. He's not like you, he's not like me. But when you see him for who he really is, and then you recognize that he's the one that gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men will stumble and fall, but those who hope, maybe your version says, those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles and they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. It's this invitation that we have that as we wait on the Lord, we're leaning into who he is. I was wrestling with this wait acronym and here's what I came up with. When you learn to wait, you hit pause, you are watching for God. 
You are asking of God to be involved. You are inviting God into your situation, into your circumstance and what you're wrestling with and you're trusting him. That's what you're doing when you're waiting on the Lord. John Ortberg writes this, biblically waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. It's part of the process of training what he goes through. Disciples of Jesus will grow in Jesus as they learn to wait on the Lord instead of just running out ahead of him and waiting for God to catch up. There is this practice, and friends, it's so difficult in our culture because our culture wants us to live a fast and furious lifestyle, to go and go and go and go and to be driven. And listen, some of you are really driven, and that's not a bad thing. My, my question to you is, are you running ahead of God or are you running alongside him? And there's a drastic difference. And so learning to pray and learning to wait on the Lord, I think are two pivotal things that will help us in our spiritual journey. And so back to Esther's story, right? So she's invited the king to this banquet because that's his love language and Haman is on his way and he comes, right? And they're there and it's a little bit into the dinner, into this banquet. Verse six says this, as they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. And Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. And then I will answer your question. What? Women are really, really good at this. Understanding timing. You know what I would have done right then? What's my request? Here's my request. That guy's evil. Here's what's happened. Here's my 14-page dissertation about it. Read it. I summed it up. Esther good. Haman bad. Just would have launched in. It's what I do so often. Do you think Maybe Esther learned something. Waiting on the Lord and in prayer. All about godly timing and the significance of it and how it opens people up to things that they're not even open to or even aware of in the moment that they're in. But if the timing's right, they become open to it. And so, O King, I'm glad you enjoyed Banquet One. I'd like you to come back for another one tomorrow. Man, the king, that's his love language. Sure, I'll come back. Haman leaves this feeling incredibly high because what's understanding, Esther pauses again in this story. That's what you're seeing, her hitting pause one more time because it's trying to figure out God's timing. In humility, she's hitting pause. Now, prayer and waiting often flow out of a posture of humility, but pride Pride will lead you to an opposing posture. Boasting and hurry will run your life if you're run by pride. See, prayer is saying to God, I am nothing without you, I need you. But boasting is saying to God and everyone else, I'm everything and I don't need anyone. And boasting, I think if you look it up in the, in the Hebrew, boasting is Haman's middle name. I don't know that to be true. 
Verse nine, here's what happens with Haman. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Why? Because he just had dinner with the king and the queen. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage again. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. That's the only time you'll read that word next to his name. And he went home, calling together his friends and Zerus and his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman said. I'm the only person the Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave, and she's invited me to another one. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see the Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Friends, Pride 101. You have so much going for you, and yet you can't enjoy any of it because pride is running your heart. It's ruining you. His wife, Zareth, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching a height of 50 cubits, which is 75 feet. Look up. The peak of that's about 30 feet. Double that. Go a little higher. So a pole is set up in Haman's backyard, 75 feet. What are they going to do with the pole? Everything they do in person with the pole, they impale people. That's what you do. It's not for tennis or badminton. It goes on. Uh, she says, look, uh, ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled upon it. Then go to the king in the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. When? Immediately. Because when you're second in charge, you can do that. Immediately, that evening, the pole is set up. And the next morning, he's going to go before the king and ask for Mordecai to be impaled upon that. He's in a hurry, and he's boastful, and he's prideful. Now, the story is about the ready to pick up steam, but we're done for tonight. The chapter ends with this invite back to another banquet. God has helped Esther to learn this idea of godly timing, and it's the wait, it's the hit pause a little bit. Friends, we will also learn godly timing as we make prayer and waiting on the Lord a habit of our life. I love what uh, T.D. Jake says this, timing is so important. If you're going to be successful in dance, you must be able to respond to the rhythm and the timing of music. It's the same in the spirit. People who don't understand God's timing, I love this, can become spiritually spastic. How many of you, when you dance, you're spastic? That's me. (laughs) They're trying to make the right things happen at the wrong time. They don't get God's rhythm. And everyone else out there can see they're out of step. That's why it's important to have this habit of prayer and waiting on the Lord. Esther seems to have the perfect step and she's right in step with God in this story. If there's ever a chance for a sermon to have a to be continued, this would be it. Because we'll pick up, the story's gonna go 110 miles an hour now uh, as the king makes his way back to this second, the whole next morning, what's gonna unfold toward this next banquet. And so I guess here's your personal invite to come back next week because we'll pick up where this is. So just a reminder of a couple clues that we closed into. Esther hits the pause button. Friends, do you have one? Do you have one? 
because I know a lot of people who want to follow after Jesus and they have ripped the pause button off their life remote. And I'm here to tell you, the scriptures over and over are calling for you and for me to learn how to hit it. That it isn't about just fast forward. It isn't about going uh, and just playing out in real life. There are moments of solitude and silence. There are moments of pausing that we all need to pray and to seek and to wait on the Lord. Esther hits this pause button. Prayer and waiting on the Lord is so key for us to living in life of faith and following after God and after his best. In a world that pushes us to make every decision fast and furious style, solely by our own merit and our own will and our own mind, we would be wise if we learned what Esther shows us. To hit pause, to seek out counsel, to lean into who God is, to wait on him. We wanna grow as disciples and to follow after Jesus. We would be wise to make prayer and waiting on him a natural rhythm of our life. And so how I'd wanna end tonight as we go back into worship here in a moment is just to reread Isaiah 40 over you. And so I just invite you Maybe you want to sit with your eyes closed and just hear these words. Maybe this is just a reminder for you in this moment to hit pause. And as we take communion, as we worship in this last song, that in these next seven to eight minutes, you would have a moment where you can actually hit pause and say, God, I, I have this thing I'm wrestling with, and I want to bring it before you in prayer. I want to bring it before you and wait on you. God, I want to wait on you this week. I don't want to take another step in my own will and my own decision and my own drive without your blessing because maybe I'm getting the timing all out of whack and maybe I'm being spiritually spastic. I want to know your timing, God. And so here's the words of Isaiah. Friend, do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he never grows tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men will stumble and fall, but those who hope, those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So Father, for all my friends here, for myself too, I pray that you'd help us to learn this habit of hitting pause in a spiritual sense, to, to make prayer a habit of our life that we engage in conversationally with you. We bring the wrestling parts of our heart and mind to you and we seek your wisdom, your activity, your insight, your discernment, your timing into those decisions. We don't want to rush out ahead of you, God. We don't want to be those people who are just blazing a trail and we've forgotten you behind. That weakens our character. It hurts our testimony. God, we want to be people who run, but we run right alongside you. That we have a, a drive and a push to make a difference in this world to navigate this third way, to figure that out with following Jesus, but we wanna do that not in our own power and not in our own accord. 
We want to be a people who lean on you, who wait on you. I know, God, some are asking, how long do I wait? I don't know. You wait until it's clear. Until God says it's time. And just like Esther, you step up to the box, you step into your moment, knowing that God's right there with you, no matter what. So Father, we thank you that Jesus did that on our behalf. As we take communion here in a minute and there's communion stations around, we remember that it was his moment he stepped into. Declaring your love over us, a forgiveness of our sins, a redemption of our lives. As we take that bread and take that juice, representing his body broken, his blood shed, for the forgiveness of our sins, we remember As we sing this song, God, would you stir us to be a people who learn to pray and wait on you. And when it's right that we step forward in confidence in a godly timing that you've ordained, would you show us how to do that, God? We wanna be that kind of church, that kind of people, because we think that's a witness that a world needs to see more of. So stir us in these moments as we take communion, as we worship you. We love you, Jesus.